1: shut up and sit down hey everybody adam and john here back with another episode of the bow hunter chronicles podcast and today we have the bow hunting fiend greg litzinger on with us uh to talk a little bit about um preparation for the season and um kind of public land hunting and kind of what what he's been able to do with it uh, among other things, but uh, we really appreciate you being on with us. How are you doing tonight, Greg?
2: All right, man. Feeling good. <laughs> good, good. Counting down the days. Uh, a few short weeks, I'll be hunting again. So,
1: and so when it's is your uh, season exciting. season open there?
2: Uh, our zone opens the eighth of September. Okay, that was proud It's coming up fast. My bow's yeah. in pieces right now. I'm looking <laughs> at my bow and I'm like, man, I gotta get. Moving.
1: <laughs> I told you, you and John are like the same person when I hear when I hear you talk, I, when I talk to you. I'm like, yeah, we're going to go on elk hunt. Like, oh, let's put on 80-pound limbs just because. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so um, just for anybody that doesn't know you, um, I guess, uh, can you give us a little bit of background about your your hunting and, and
2: actually even where you're at? Hey, people don't know me? Wow. <laughs> I'm this- I'm slacking, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's a uh, 40-year-old male living in South Jersey, born and raised. I've uh, traveled all over, you know, lived all over the state, basically, pretty much hunted every type of terrain New Jersey has, had success in all different forms of uh, areas. I've been doing this. This will be my 27th season, twenty seventh postseason. And pretty much hunted public basically all 27 years,
0: you know. So I've been I've been at this game a long time. Uh, the the public land hustle, I guess. It's funny when you say New Jersey because it's like when I think of New Jersey, I don't think of it. I didn't even realize there was that much hunting
1: there. Yeah, I mean, sure. Jersey Shore, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think of the Mafia,
0: yeah. <laughs> Atlantic yeah. City, or whatever.
2: Yeah. Uh, I used to, actually some big. I used to live uh, living in Lang City. I shot out a lot of my deer in the Pine Barrens. You know, <laughs> wow. never That's did never did kill one. Shot out a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds more like me than it does, John. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of shooting. <laughs> but so, one of the things that drew me uh, that I wanted to talk to you is we talked a little bit about it earlier um, before the podcast and uh, earlier in the week, but when you go out there on public land, it's more of a, a pride thing, it sounds like. Like, you relish in the fact that you're hunting on public land where it's hard and there's other guys, and, yeah. and you kind of like to show people that, you know, that you can do it and, and yeah. you know, come, come follow me, you know, if you want to, if you're yeah. a good hunter, like, you know, do what I'm doing. It's, it's, and, uh, and for here in Michigan, the public land thing is kind of like, it's a less than, right? It's like mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody today, like I said, that was worried about the season because it's coming up. Our season opens October first for for Bo, and he doesn't have his food plots all set up, and he's got so much work to do, and all this stuff, and he doesn't have a big one on camera yet, and you know, it, it's, yeah. I was telling him, you know, I'm switching everything up and just going to to hang and hunt and look at a map, go into a spot that just looks good on the map. And it looks like it'll be far away from people, and I'm pretty sure there's a deer going to be. If I was a deer, that's where I'd want to be. Um, and, th- and he was like, "Yeah, let me, let me see how that goes for you." <laughs> it was yeah. just a very, very, I don't know, kind of like down your
2: nose uh, thing. It's, I think a lot of people get that. You know, I'm, even, i even—I guess I was guilty of it at one point in time. The, the stigma with public and private—you you always wish. Man, I wish I had this. I wish I had that. And I was lucky enough, like my dad, he's is a, a certified killer. You know, he's he's killed a few nice deer. Like no, not many mega giants, but he's a killer. And you know, and I had it. You know, he taught me. You know, put me in the right path, and I had another mentor in the early in the early part of my uh, first couple of years. Same way. But he killed giants like all the time, so I had, I had, I had a good you know a base to, to start off with, and the the mindset is make do with what you got. You know, it would be nice to have a private farm. Yeah, if I my family had money, i a farm. I'd probably hunt that because it's easier. But I didn't really that wasn't in the cards for me, so we just kind of played the hand that you dealt, and you know, it, it's it's rough sometimes. You know, and frustrating <laughs> a lot of times. But as you, as I've gotten older, like you said, like you were saying earlier, it, it does become a pride thing to be able to do what a lot of people have tried and failed and thrown a towel and resorted to. You know, like I don't, I don't even use trail cameras. It's such a rare occasion that I, you know, pattern deer or, you know, camera bomb areas. So I, you know, I'd, I'd make it really, really hard on myself, <laughs> a lot harder than it needs to be. But I enjoy that that process to, you know, uh, do something that is, you know, a lot, uh, pretty difficult for a lot of people, and it's, and you know, especially now I get older, it's. There's definitely uh, more to it than just killing, you know. Like last year, I I passed on a, I could have shot this 140 caliber ten pointer plus. I had him dead to rights, but I didn't have him on camera. And I let a giant deer in public walk because I said, you know, it's like if, if it's 140 range and I can't get him on camera, I won't shoot him. If it's 170, I'm going to shoot him regardless of camera or not. I'm not on TV <laughs> or anything. But, like, I, I kind of upped the ante for myself a little bit to add more stress to the situation, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm a stubborn, difficult man.
1: <laughs> and so you're when you say on camera, that's not trail camera. You're you're videoing all of your hunts. Yes, videoing. Yes.
2: And how long have you been doing and, that? Uh, uh I don't know, six or seven years, I guess. And I believe it or not, I mean, I film myself and it only cost me, you know, three deer maybe, and all that time. I've been pretty fortunate enough if I have a deer come in range, I get a shot off on film. You know, minus you know last year and the year before, last two years from been a little rough on that aspect, uh, but it you know, the good with the bad. You know, the first five years of filming, I couldn't do no wrong,
0: <laughs> so it was like, well, all right, you know. So what what camera, arm and camera are you using for your solo?
2: I just use a, a cheap, I started off with a $200 Canon Vixia and a Lone wolf Arm. I still got the Lone Wolf Arm, and now I got a Panasonic HV770 or something. Now, they're still, you know, four hundred hour camera. I don't have anything extensive. You know, I'm not a videographer uh storyteller by any means. You know, I just like to film some of the stuff I do and mainly I, I, I film pretty much for the impact shots is why I think I really got into it. As I uh I shot a deer and jumped him. And if I had a camera you'd go back, you know, we end up finding the deer. But if I had a camera I would have known to back out you know, and, and come back you know a couple hours later so i think that's pretty much how it all started if i think about it
0: does uh does new jersey have rules like can you use lighted knocks expandable heads i mean can you use everything yeah you
2: can use yeah you can use lighted knocks which is nice it was uh i don't think you've ever, they were ever outlawed but uh they do help <laughs> when filming. That's for
0: sure. Right, for sure. I was just listening to a podcast uh, someone did. And they were talking about how, like, in I think it's Oregon. No, Oregon can use it. Well, where we're going, Idaho, we can't use lighted knocks. And it's yeah. like, man, that's like it's almost detrimental of finding your deer. Like, you can if you can't see it on with that lighted knock, and you make a bad shot, and you think, oh, it was a good shot, and then you go and jump the animal, and I mean, you have mm-hmm. a better chance of losing it. Without a lighted that it's almost more ethical, I think.
2: Yeah, that's. I, I think that argument is, you know, I understand both sides of the story because they want to try and keep hunting as pure as possible, get the technology out of it. Right. Um, because, you know, like, it's a slippery slope. Because here in Jersey, you know, uh, like I'm, I don't hold anything against keep it a hunter or bait. It's just not my thing. Oh. I don't, it don't bring me joy. Thing about shooting you know, something over bait. And they they allowed, you know, uh, they passed the baiting law and it makes hunting very difficult. <laughs> These, uh you know, and with the advent of trail cameras and like all this technology aspects coming into hunting, you know, so I, I do miss the simpler times of hunting. But I understand some states that are hesitant in allowing some things. Eventually they'll probably allow it because that's what the people want, you know. Right. Yeah, you know, but it's
0: I understand all that. I mean, I'm on the same boat. I've never never really baited. I mean, once in a great while I'll do it for my son or something just to try to get it one under his belt, but as a whole I've never baited. Well, and and now in in Michigan,
1: they just where we live specifically is now the in the CWD management area and there will be no baiting for our area completely it's it's legal in Michigan right now 2019 it's going to be completely banned in the lower peninsula and it's it's really causing a stir amongst a lot of hunters that you know that's that's what they do and it's i i understand it i'm not a proponent of baiting but i feel like everybody's I think the goal, kind of like what you were saying about keeping hunting pure. However, like John was saying, like for for the kids, you know, we have a a two day youth hunt that's like September fifteenth, sixteenth, or fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, something like that, and um, that's to garner more youth. They're going to be out there with, you know, they they have to be out there with a mentor or whatever. But yeah, the bait at that time. I think is probably more important because that's the future of hunting. So if you're yeah. you're taking these kids out there to see nothing on their special hunt, um, <laughs> that's one of the things where I think that, that that's a slippery slope. You know what I mean? Like fostering yeah. the, the the hunting going forward. So
0: right, like I yeah. tell my son, though, I'm like, yeah, we we'll bait you know maybe certain times, but don't get used to it because it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, that's not how we hunt. Yeah. And I don't even own a trail camera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, getting back back to what you were saying, um, so when you're you're targeting deer in areas, what is the class deer that you're you're targeting? You know, we grew up where everything was an eight point or a six point, or man, that look at that ten point, and everything's gone to itch, inches. Um, but it almost seems like the further uh, that guys get into it, it becomes more of an age class thing than than inches
2: yeah i uh like around here like because we have like i said i grew up in when i first started hunting you could pretty much kill like seven or eight bucks in new jersey throughout all seasons combined so the age structure was garbage in any piece of public it was just because anything got massacred spikes forks you know and back then people didn't shoot those they'd rather shoot a spike than a doe and it's like I saw in that same trap because yeah, that's what everybody did. Same. So a few years goes by and they implement antler report restrictions in a couple of zones around us. So it's got a three on one side. Um and that within two years two years of them putting that in effect, you know, the the number of you know, good deer sightings jumped dramatically. I mean exploded. So around here a two and a half Deer was going to put you in that probably the average genetic is going to be in that 100-inch range, you know, give or take a few. Three and a half is going to put you in that, you know, that 120 range, I guess. So that's pretty much what I, I hate using in inches, but that's what seems to be what people kind of go on these days. But, you know, I, I look for mature deer. Um, it could be a, an 8-inch deer. If he comes in, he's got a giant body. Big old head, big fat bases. I'm going to shoot him because I know he's old. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd rather shoot an, eight, an eight-year-old deer, you know, with a 120-inch rack versus a 150-inch deer. That's you know, straight ahead. Just to so you know that eight-year-old deer. That's he's been there, done that, and he's like, you know, the statesman. And I, I enjoy those that type of challenge. So when you're,
1: so we talked about it a little bit. Again before the podcast um, but as you're getting ready for your season, you know you're putting out a lot of uh, stuff on social media and on your YouTube channel that's kind of going through a little bit of your your scouting and and helping guys out you know you're you're putting the viewer out there to say this is what I'm looking for this is how it's this, this is what I found and this is what I'm doing with it um, but to yeah. back that up on a on a grander scheme, like what are you looking for when you you're going into an area so you're if you are you're hunting public so you look at it and you say you just want to get to an overlooked spot do you want to get as far away from the people that are going to be baiting that you can or are you looking for specific you know terrain features it doesn't matter if there's going to be bait piles here there and
2: everywhere this
1: is where you think the deer
2: is going to be yeah pretty much all, all, that, combined, all the above. <laughs> uh, you know, it's I've, I've, I've been on both. Uh, cause I, I go through like cycles, you know, where I need to be far away from people. Well, the best spot I ever hunted, you know, is, is no longer there. It's a the house there, but it was literally fifty yards off the road, this small little one acre overgrown field in the you know right behind the old abandoned house that everybody walked past. And literally, you could, I can see my truck behind that spot. And I've seen, you know, I shot the biggest deer I'll probably ever shoot in New Jersey. I, I end up losing them because of uh, my broadhead snap. Uh, but that's a story for another day. But so it doesn't really, you know, sometimes you don't have to go three miles away. Sometimes you just got to think differently, you know, because humans are very, very uh, predictable. Uh, guys that hunt in certain woods, they they pretty much park the same spot, walk the same trail, hunt the same one or two trees. Well, these deer know this, and they avoid those places, or they they know how to use you know, this this human intrusion to their advantage. Uh, so, getting back to the, the question, it's whatever the, whatever the deer sign leads me. If it's terrain, if, I'm, if I let's say pick a point in the swamp, and there's a lot of you know, good buck sign there, then boom, I'll, I'll really dissect that area. I go to, uh, you know, on a rub line and it leads me back to this random spot. You're like, why would deer bed here? But the buck sign telling me something's here, then I'll dissect that area. It's, you know, it's really dependent on the deer sign because now with more and more hunters in the woods and everybody's running trail cameras, people are seeing deer they never seen before. So some people are, are blowing out areas and these deer are having to relocate or they're having to, you know, alter their travel corridors or their travel patterns. So each season's different in <laughs> a lot of areas I hunt because uh, new people come in, you know, people, you know, they, they stop hunting in certain areas. So it's always, you know, a challenge to find where deer are are, are betting on a regular basis anymore.
1: And so, when you're doing this, um, you're scouting. When are you doing most of your scouting, or are you
2: always scouting? Pretty much always scouting. Um, majority is. I mean, I even start in January because our gun season runs um, pretty much the whole month of December. There's like 20 days of shotgun and muzzleloader and like doe So there's a lot of a lot going on in December. And winter bow, I haven't seen a mature dinner in winter bow and probably a decade. So if I need meat, like I'll shoot a doe, but a lot of times winter bow, I start, you know, looking for, you know, new rubs because if a buck gets blown out from the drivers, you know, during gun season. So sometimes rub it a you know, a spot that's where he's you know, laying down. So if I find new rubs in January, um, you know, they could be rut rubs, but I don't, I don't really know, but I just marked them on a, my GPS or Onyx maps and come back, you know, after season and poke around a little bit. So, majority of my scouting from, I would say, middle of December until green up. Okay. And that's usually every Saturday. <laughs> and like I said, my wife's pretty, pretty awesome for allowing me to not be home ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that
1: would be. That would be nice. Uh, When you are picking a time to hunt, are you, because, you know, you work full-time job, you got all sorts of stuff going on. Are you um, choosing, uh, are you you trying to hunt moon phases? Are you trying to hunt um, like cold fronts or are you just hunting when you have time? Because I, I think that that's um, that's where that's where myself and uh, one of the the ruts that I've fallen into, and that's why I, I'm completely changing everything up this year, is if I had time, I felt like I had to be in the woods hunting, but I didn't mm-hmm. have enough areas scouted, so I always went to the same spot at the same time, and I got yeah. the same results. Everything, but it all kind of fell into that category of I have a day might not be the greatest wind. It might not be the greatest weather. It might not be the greatest anything, but I have time. So I should be hunting where it sounds like I should take those days and just do some scouting or go to an area that I'd like to check out and just get up a tree and see what I see and do more of an observation type thing instead of, you know, essentially wasting it on just going to the same tree that I've been to the last six hunts, you know? Yeah, it's, um,
2: I, I pretty much hunt whenever I can. Um, I'm pretty much a weekend warrior. I've killed, I kill, you know, 99% of my deer on Saturday mornings. So I don't, I'm not a guy like I had vacation and I, four weeks, I pretty much devoted to for hunting season. And I couldn't tell you last time I killed a deer that wasn't a Saturday. (laughs) So it's like, I I burn vacation times on the rut and pre-rut, and I'm still a Saturday killer. But, yeah, weather does play a factor. Um, if I, I'll keep a couple days, and it's pre-rut, and I get a cold front coming in, I, I'll get sick real fast and be in the woods. Um, moon phase, I do pay attention to them when hunting uh, beds, especially in the morning. Um, I'm not a very good evening hunter. Cause, <laughs> like I said, morning is kind of my time, so... I, I do pay attention to the moon phase when hunting uh, a specific buck bed in the morning because I know he's gonna possibly be running, you know, a few minutes late, getting to his bed. Um, you know, said so weather and moon. When it, you you get a cold front noon and you know like a pre rut time, like October eighteenth, it's usually I won't say it's slam dunk, but it's a it's a good time to be in the woods. That's for sure.
0: Back to your moon phase, like when you're when you say prefer is there a certain moon phase that you prefer for hunting morning you know that buck whenever
2: the overhead and underfoot is within you know an hour of first light okay. and last light um i use u.s prime times and i got the, the moon guide i always buy the moon guide just to i don't know i've always i've always bought it so it's like a habit i guess but yeah whenever the overhead or underfoot is within an hour of first light, you know, plus or minus, you know, either on you know, an hour before or an hour after. I usually, you know, when like I said, the the moon, the moon phase, the weather, and the pre rut when all that lines up, it's it's usually a great day in the
0: woods. That's for sure. Yeah, I was just showing Adam. I had my moon phase uh, pulled up for when we we're out in Idaho this this coming hunt in two weeks (laughs) yeah we get into that here
1: in a minute but i gotta so you hunt like the the kind of like a beast style you know you hunt uh, some beds and things like that you hunt kind of all sorts of terrain all over so Mm -hmm. I'd, i'd imagine that you're just giving what the what the property or the terrain dictates but yeah you're one of the few people um, that I've heard talk about bed hunting in the morning and the J hooking and, and, and all of that. Um, why do you, is it, do you think it's because of the the attention that you pay to the moon phase um, that that's just kind of been one of the ways that you've been successful? So you continue to, to do it? Cause it doesn't sound like a lot of bed hunters are, are trying to catch them coming back.
2: Yeah, he like said a lot of bed hunters that um, that hunt beds they do favor the evenings. Where I have never had much success in the evening because in my the way, that my brain works. If a buck's in his bed, and know there's people all over the place. There's a lot of pressure, especially now with dating and everything. So he's he doesn't need to leave his bed till after dark, and I, I do that. Find that's pretty much the case a lot. Like I've watched the bed, you know, a buck get up out of his bed in the evening, you know, stand there till dark, and then I had to sit in my tree, you know, two hours after he leaves, and it's like it was come on, and he'll take an hour just to go fifty yards, but in the morning, you know, he might get caught up by a coyote, another hunter, he might get spooked, and he wants to get to his bed, so he wants to get there. Sometimes they make, you know, they're, they're going to drop their guard ever so slightly, and. You know, that's why I think I, I have success. Um, that's why I have success, you know, hunting in the morning because I'm, I'm beating the deer there. I'm there, you know, two hours plus before first light, <laughs> quiet, ready to go. So, and, and my findings, deer will bed in J hooks maybe 50% of the time. Um, I don't know why it, it goes against everything that they should do. I think if it's a if it's his main bed, you know he goes he's in that bed you know, numerous times during the week. He'll let his guard down just a little bit. He'll get within you know 50 yards of that, but like, right, I've I've been in here, you know, 50, 60 times in a row without any issues. I'll just go right in but If he feels safe there. You know he drops his guard, and that's usually you know, like right where I'm always seems to seem to be because I've had deer come in at from seven to seven thirty, long after first light. Where that seven seven thirty seems to be my time where I, I I kill all my big deer, coming back to bed in the morning. which goes against the you know, like I said a, a lot of standard industry. Um, I don't even call it standard, but what a lot of people do. This is something I guess I've adapted. You know, numerous styles to to kind of suit something that works for me. I guess.
0: <laughs> so when you're when you're sneaking in there, are you using sticks and uh, hang on or. You already have it? Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, sometimes sometimes a climber, but usually in, in, in the morning with beds, I'll use a, you know, hang on and sticks because I've been set up and had a deer go in the bed, you know, I'm only 56 yards away, and it's a buck I won't shoot anyway, or it's, you know, or he gets in there before light, or it's a buck I won't shoot. I can usually climb down and get out without spooking him. You know, it takes me forever, but... For the most part I've I've gotten down, you know, on quite a few occasions with bucks bedded, you know, fifty yards away and you know, slowly get out of the get out of dodge.
0: Yeah, you're not gonna do that in a climber. <laughs> <laughs> not very often, maybe once or twice, but
1: Yeah.
2: And so what stand and sticks are you running? Uh, I use Lone Wolf. You know, I've been oh, I've had their climber for almost twenty years and probably to hang on for mm, 15 years maybe 14 and it's the, the hang on and sticks definitely allow you to hunt uh, or they open up the door to hunt better
0: trees uh, that's that's for sure yeah you're not looking for a pole tree to climb with you
1: yeah that's, that's what I'm switching to this year um, and I just sold my lone wolf climber and I love the stand and I'd tell anybody to get one um, but I had to be, I had to commit and if I had it, I would use it because I loved the stand and I just couldn't, you know, like I said, if I, if I had it, it was going to be falling back into, well, that's easier. It's going to, it's
0: going to be what I'm comfortable with, what I know. Um, so, so I had to get rid of it. It had to go. I'm not quite there yet. I'm not, I haven't sold my summit. I have a, my climber's super comfortable. I don't think I could do an all day sit and a, and a hang on.
2: Yeah. I mean, my um, got, my buddy's got a summit I'll use sometimes. I know I'm going to sit all day in, like, the mature hardwoods where I've got straight trees. That thing's, like, crazy comfortable. But it's a little noisy getting up and down. I mean, that's going to be downfall.
0: Yeah, for that sure.
2: To that that stand. But it's comfortable. I'll fall asleep in that thing in a heartbeat.
1: <laughs> and so another thing um, that I noticed about you uh, versus, you know, a, a lot of the the B style hunters or the, the people that are hunting buck beds and that are successful, they don't really, you know, they play the wind. And so scent control isn't that big of a deal to them. Uh, but then they also don't use any sense or, you know, you know, run anything like that. And you're working with a New Jersey company. It is, you know, you, do you do that just to, uh, I mean, set up a, like a, a mock scrape and, and, Get a point where yeah, yeah. you want to kill them there, or I mean, I guess how are you using them? Because like I said, most people that that I've encountered in that style of hunting are like, well, we don't do any of that. We're just going in to kill this deer yeah. at that time.
2: Yeah, I I find uh, mox grapes. Yeah, you know, I've I've dabbled off and on for years, and I finally got you know uh, something that works for me. I mean, I've killed one two deer. Like my biggest deer ever scrape uh wise. And another one coming from a scraping area that I set up. You know, I pretty much doctored up a mock scrape right off a big primary scrape. and got the all worked up. So I use them, you know, from October 20th to, you know, about the 28th of October. And then I kind of transition off and try to anyway. You know, it's, it's kind of hard when, you know, the scrapes are getting hit. But I use scrapes because... Uh, all even pressured deer, they're gonna expose themselves either, you know, first light, last light, or in the middle of the day, set check, checking their scrapes because they're just you know, they're their dry debris it forces them to check their scrapes. So I, I do believe that it can help. Uh, it'll get a shot off on a deer. Um, but it's difficult at the same time because if you, you, you think you stink up a scrape, you have a primary scrape area this year just won't come there until the star. So it's like a, a double-edged sword. If you do it right, it's great. If you do it wrong, well, you just destroy an area where you probably had a chance to go deer. Um, I, uh, I got in the scrapes, like really got in the scrapes, after John Eberhardt, you know, another Michigan guy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he said, toss the land and scrapes, and I use toss the land a lot, also. And that's I find the scent like goes against what a lot of people do, but around here, everybody uses doe and heat. Um, I've never had a buck come in a doe and heat. They always run away from it. Tarsal gland, you know, buck smell. I've, I've had does, you know, come in my tarsal gland, bucks, all shapes and sizes. So scent can, you know, help you out when needed. But outside of the rut, pre-rut, I don't really mess with it too much. And so the, the
1: stuff that you're using, is it natural or synthetic? Because back to that CWD natural. thing. Yeah, everything here in Michigan has switched to, has to be synthetic. synthetic. Um, so, yeah. so, um, so nothing.
2: Eventually, I don't think we have any CWD cases here in New Jersey. If we do, they're so minor. <clears throat> but I see synthetic sense pretty much taking over um, a, lot of, a lot of areas in the future. I don't under. I mean, I don't really understand the whole CW. I've never really read up on the, the hows and whys of CWB, so I uh, I can't really comment any further on that except
0: what I pretty much hear or read on social media these days. That's pretty much all that's being talked about here in Michigan right now with everything that's going on.
1: Yeah, and like I said, especially right where we live, we're right in the we're not in the 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 active zone. Uh, where they found the cases of CWD, but we're in the bordering counties where it's the management zone. So basically yeah. we're getting, you know, you know, a yeah. hundred years of hunting culture turned on its head. And so everybody that's, that's hunting now is, is saying, you know, well, what about this and what about this? And you've got people putting out bad information saying that it doesn't even exist. And then, you know, you got scientists saying that, you know the the way that you have to get rid of it is to kill the entire herd, and so there's a yeah. lot of infighting between the two groups. But yeah, that's one of the changes that they they went to was um, it, no no natural no natural, and then there's something that it has to be approved by the ATA, um, some sort of governing body for for sense. And
2: yeah, things. and that's just pretty much urine-based sense only, though. Correct. I think it's taken.
1: No, I think it's anything because the CWD can be transferred like through saliva and like spinal fluids and everything. So, okay. I think it's any any sort of lure is what they're, yeah. what they're saying. So it's it's pretty crazy. So you had said that your your bow is in in pieces. <laughs> what yeah. what what's, what are you shooting? And what what's kind of going on there?
2: <laughs> it's a it's a new breeze, uh Eclipse oldie book goody, uh, 2012. Uh, I just got new uh, new arrows coming and, and new strings. So I took it apart and I, mean, I, I pretty much take all my hunting bows apart every year. Uh, rebuild them, just go over everything. I mean, I got numerous bows. So if one goes down, I'm I'm not like hurting for a bow, but it's just uh, I don't know something I've, I've been doing these last you know, ten years or so. I just want to know exactly. What's going on with my bow? And like I said I can rebuild that bow, and you will know, put it back together and have it shooting
0: bullet holes in a couple hours. I heard in a uh, previous podcast that you were on that you talked about bows and that you actually had uh, hunt-specific bows. Like if you're hunting in the swamp area and you have limited range, yes, yeah.
2: Because uh, like I said, I got you know like a new bow. Uh, I, I very rarely buy a brand new bow. I mean, I use about used. But, like, my new bows, my newest bows, I save them for hunting mature hardwoods where I can't get them ruined. And then I got my swamp bow, and then, you know, I got my long-distance bow. They you know, all got different, you know, different setups for the applications. You know, my swamp bow, it's 50 pounds. Because if I had a hold an hour back on a deer, that's kind of tree for a while. You know, and that bow, you know, 20 yards is a far shot. Some of my setups, so I take that bow at 50 pounds, and I'm like, Oh, you sit behind that tree? No problem. I'll hold this thing all day. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, know, so, uh, and also, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm addicted to bows, but I like having different bows,
0: you know, like picking up a different bow and shoot. Yeah, I'm in the same boat there. I like to have yeah. some, some extra bows laying around. It's kind of nice when Adam's bows are here, I can go out and shoot his, even though they're a couple inches short, but they're still fun to shoot, play around with. So how did you land on uh new breed? Because, um,
1: I hadn't even heard of the company until we kind of started this thing and kind of dove into it. And then, um, last year I wanted to go talk to them at, at ATA and shoot their bows. Cause I liked mm-hmm. their story, yeah. you know, of just like, you know, had putting different limbs and risers in your garage and kind of growing it that way. I mean, it, it sounds kind of like. You know what John's doing here with you know just building strings for himself, and then you know other people want them and and, and whatever. Yeah. Um, but then they got like their trailer broke into and lost half their bows that they were bringing to ATA, so they only had a few that you could shoot. But uh, yeah, uh, how did how did you land there?
2: Um, I, uh, like I said I've always liked the bows. The, the grip for me has always been a pleasure. You know, for me to shoot, like it just fits my hand very well, and. Always wanted one, and I was working at a shop at a time and they didn't sell them, so I had to shoot, you know, what they sold. So once I left there and went somewhere else, I found a new breed, cheap, 250 bucks fully loaded on archery tall, my clips. So I was like, how do I not buy that? I'm getting ready to go on an out trip, you know, in nine months. Perfect outfit, long axle axle and fast, fast enough for me. And then, uh, Newbury contacted me um, that summer about see if I wanted to, you know, be on their hunting staff as uh, some of my social media posts and pictures. So I signed on, and I've been with them, you know, two years of shooting for them for two years now. And the Vos just, they're not barn burners. You know, they're shooting through 50 feet per second. They're just smooth. I mean, Epo, the Eclipse 2012, and at 70 pounds, it's so smooth. I mean, it's just like, uh, how do I not want to shoot a bow that's
1: new? That well, I mean, I guess well, the I'm, fact. I'm that, well, I was gonna say, I guess the fact that it's you know, a 2012, and you're still shooting it, and it's yeah. you know, it's kind of one of those things where I, th- I feel like the yeah. thing the thing is on some level everybody wants to get a new bow every year, and I I think you kind of alluded to that fact, you know, was like what you're told that you have to do. It's like, oh, well, yeah. It's time to yeah. time to turn this one over. You know, the new thing is better and faster, and 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 yeah. all that.
2: You know, and and we're we're in an age now in, in the hunting community where it, there's too many consumers and not enough producers. Where we're told that you know a lot of people are consuming products. Then you know manufacturers are producing it. People are consuming it, but but really nobody's really producing anything with it. You know. A bow is not necessarily going to make you a better killer, by any means. You know, it might make you more accurate, but any bow, to be accurate, you put the time in with it. You know, you still, there's still a human element to it. And spending $1,200 on a bow every year, if you got the money, great. You know, I don't have that type of cash flow. You know, I'm not built like that. <laughs> so, the 2012, 2010, you know, 2014, you know, whatever you can afford, shoot.
1: Well, I've kind of told people that before, because the, I guess there's like two different, like there was the old bows, you know, before they became parallel limb. And so if anybody's shooting a bow, I I would even say that's 10 years old, you can pick up the lowest model bow today and it's just going to be so much different. And they haven't done a whole lot with, you know, there's a kind of like a hard cap on speed you know there's always going to be a a faster speed bow you know as they approach you know 400 feet a second or whatever they're trying to do but i think the real difference is kind of what you said as far as being smooth and then quiet and taking the vibration out of it you know that that whole thing that they're trying to sell now the dead in hand i mean when you shoot all the bows side by side you can tell you know what one is just just lights out but if you were yeah. to shoot your 2000 bow and the worst bow from 2018 it's gonna feel like a Ferrari you know comparatively yeah so
2: yeah, and that's uh and I love like vib- like I'm not really a big on the vibration like some guys are all oh, this goes to quiet in my hand like I a, a decent stabilizer and string sensors and shooting an arrow heavy enough pretty much it takes a lot of that vibration out of the roster. I mean, I, I've never been shot a bow that, and you know, not bought it because of vibration. Like, if I was accurate with it, like, that's the name of the game to me. I don't, you know, vibrations. You know, come winter time, you got a big pair of gloves on and drones pumping. You know what? I don't feel that vibration. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and I, and they are nice to shoot, don't get me wrong. Like, my 3D bow, it's, it's comfortable, but... My arrows are so light, it the bow vibrates. I put up my hunting arrow on it, you know, hunting weight arrow, it don't vibrate. So there's really nothing, you know, so if you shoot an arrow that's, you know, designed for what you're trying to do application, you know, the average bow, even I think a, a, a lower grade model will, will shoot well, vibration-wise.
0: Yeah, for sure. I you say that and I'm looking at my, I have last year's Hoyt XL, and that's what I hunted with last year with like 560 grain Easton Axis arrows and yep. that thing was just smooth, dead quiet. And then now this summer I have it set up for my 3D bow and I'm shooting like 390 grain uh, Easton Super Drives which are just, you know, light as feathers compared to that hunting arrow and now the bow is just it's loud and vibrating, but yeah. it's still tack driver. I mean, when I'm on it, anyway. yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> you know, and a lot of it, you know, is, is market bill, you know, companies marketing things. Their job is to sell. Like I get it to business, you know, but a, a lot of people are, are drinking the Kool-Aid on a lot of things in all aspects of hunting. It's going to make you better. And I don't necessarily agree with that.
0: Like personally, like what, what adam was saying how when we were down ata he shot like every bow and i mean that's a great thing it's like if you could just take and have them all blacked out don't care you know what brand they are whatever just you pick up a bow and you shoot it and you'll know when it's the bow that fits you it's your style like your draw you know cycle and back you know back wall all that even i told my son i'm like we were up at the pro shop know, a couple of weeks ago, and he was looking at the Triax. He's like, "Oh man, this thing's sweet. I wanna, I want this Matthews." And even it, he ended up getting a Matthews hat. I'm like, "Well, you need to go and just shoot the different bows and find out which one fits you, you yep. know, in your style. Exactly. You can't just go, you know, brand specific. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. the last couple of years now. I've, I've been a Hoyt guy, but before that, I shot my Bowtech." For that, I was always shooting Matthews because they felt good. I was I like that wood handle and the feel of it. Yeah. But then I ended up going with the Bowtech, and I just bought that like it was a used bow on eBay, and got it in, and I'd never shot it, and it was like, but it was the right draw length, and so going from a Matthews Q2 XL to the Bowtech Boss, and it was a completely different draw cycle. It was, I mean, it shot great. But it had like such an aggressive draw cycle on it. You could hardly let the bow down without yeah. shooting your hand through it. I mean, it, great shooting bow, but not not for me, not not for a hunting situation anyway.
2: Yeah, and that's like and that just comes with personal experience. Like, like I said, a lot, not a lot of people put themselves out there to, to try different things, um, you know. And like I said, I'm not paid to shoot new breeds. I get I get a slight discount on bows. You know, uh, but I guess if somebody's paying me X amount of dollars a year to tell you a bow is the best in the world, I guess I'd probably say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what?
1: one of the things I also, what is your um, background? Because you've worked in bow shops and and things like that. So that's that's mm-hmm. kind of where you got all your knowledge as far as building them, putting them back together taking them apart.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I self-taught, um, I I was getting tired of paying quote-unquote pro shops to work on my bow, and, and I fix things for a living, so it's like, I was just lazy, not doing it on my own, you know, and I was just taking to a shop, and I look at my peep, and it's just like, garbage, like, just crap tied in. I'm like, I could do better than this, so I, I, bought a Bowmaster portable bow press, and, I bought a used bow or a, a, a bow from a flea market and I pretty much just started taking things apart and figuring out how, why, and a lot of reading and archery talk, a lot of talking to people. And then I uh, got a job in a shop and loved it. I was like, wow, it's actually fun. And then I went and worked for another shop and, and then, you know, working two jobs for five years gets old. So I took a, took a hiatus from, you know, working at a shop. And now I just work at my house with a couple of bows a year. I do miss it, though. You know, dealing with customers and helping, helping actual people that want to get better, better. That's the thing I miss the most.
1: With that in the season coming up, when people would bring their bows in, because I've got buddies that have bow presses and buddies that have worked in shops, and it was always, you know right before the season, everybody comes in and they want new strings and they want this and they want that. Um, for people, for those weekend warrior type people or whatever that are just pulling their bows out of the cases right now, say, and they've got a month to to oh, get ready yep. or get, what are the some things that they should be checking out on their bows or what were the problems that you saw like in the pro shops most often uh, as people just started to dust off their bows from last year?
2: Yeah. Now, this day and age, uh, back in the day, you know, ten years ago, when single cams were you know all the rage, for the most part, it was the strings were so long, you would deal a lot of stretch, um, even with high end strings, because you got you know ninety. Some of them what, Matthews and other bows were ninety plus inches of string. Uh, you'd get stretch in them, and now with uh, Suppose today the, the cable is a lot shorter, so the timing really isn't too much of an issue. Um, if they have good strings on them, but if they got factory strings or lower level strings, I check the timing or check the condition of the strings, serving, servings, uh, separations around the cam toasts, Because if that unravels halfway through the season, then your, you know, your, your stops are sitting on your strings and you know, you pluck, you nick one set of strings, you know, a couple fibers of strings and your time can you get off, your tune can go. And a lot of it's just set things to factory spec and then, like, retune your bow. A lot of people will, it, tuned, it, it shot great last year. All right, that was last year. <laughs> let's, let's put everything back in the factory spec and have you shoot it because maybe you, you know, you were off last year. Let's kind of start from ground zero and, and go from there. But, yeah, you know, just your basic eyeball stuff. Um, and bows are pretty, for the most part, most newer bows are, are well-built. You, know, you don't have many, too many errors, uh, minus some limbs or something, delaminating from time to time.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a bow There's certain brands in the for that. <laughs> some are. <laughs> kind of back to your gear, I mean, what uh, what release are you shooting? I shoot a, a Wayland hooker out of Michigan, Mike Wayland. Yep. Uh, and you're using that for hunting spike. season too?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a spike release.
0: Yep.
2: It's uh, no moving parts. So, uh, you know, you know, uh, quote, unquote, back tension type release.
0: Right. Two-finger? That's the word everybody's using. What do you uh, prefer, two-finger, three-finger, four-finger?
2: Uh, for hunting, I shoot a, th- a three and a two, but I shoot them with a strap. Um, it allows me to, you know, I can, if I had a hole back on a deer, I can, you know, hold a little bit more consistent than with my fingers. Okay. Um, for target, I shoot, you know, just three finger. Um, I, I do have a two finger, but I'm, I'm not as accurate in high pressure situations. Same with my hunting bell, you know, like come, you know, the pre-rut, I break out, you know, my original Wayland's. Uh, leather strap it's got three finger uh but early season i'll use like a two finger uh i'm just not as comfortable with a two finger in a high pressure you know tense situation you, you lose that leverage factor you know
1: right john doesn't have a problem sending arrows here there and everywhere with whatever <laughs> release he has <laughs> i don't think that that's the root of the the issues he's sitting here with a uh, thumb button a back tension and a hinge in front of him and i feel like his wheels are spinning like which one should i use for hunting what what am i well, Oh, they're, they're yeah. all going
0: to be in my pouch it's <laughs> going to be how i feel on that day but you're doing the tim gillingham where you just reach in and grab one and yeah just shoot <laughs> just shoot i might even have my wrist strap on up my sleeves too so <laughs> oh man
2: yeah i um i got, cause I i I made a transition, like I said, from index, you know, finger popper, you know, to a uh, uh, sweet spot, true ball sweet spot with the hinge, with the safety, and I end up getting a coach because trying to self-teach yourself is, it, it's rough. The average person, especially the average person with bad habits, it's hard to teach yourself, you know, and I got a, a coach, you know, Actually, a person, not some internet guy. And he pretty much told me to stick with one release. And of course, I don't listen to him. I'd go bounce around and it made it harder. And then once I listened to him, I was like, wow, it's so much easier just dealing with one release. (laughs) (laughs) Because you get to, you know, perfect it, you know, over the course of, you know, six, seven months. You'll have your ups and downs. You know, but whenever you make changes to anything, I find it. It can be good. When it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's, it's bad. Leave your second, and then castings. you start messing with your psyche. You know, you you, you lose that self confidence, that that little bit of swagger that you have. It, it can be, you know, it's hard to get that back.
1: You're talking. <laughs> you're you're echoing everything I tell John because <laughs> he, he can shoot so well, and then as soon as he gets in his own head. And he's, then he's switching releases. He's changing his sights. You know, I said this, I think, on the last podcast, but, like, when I make a bad shot or when I pull a shot, like, I automatically think that it's me, that I did it. Because I know that the bow was set up fine 20 minutes ago when I was shooting just fine. But John's yeah. always adjusting the sight and messing with this. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> like,
0: and then, and then it's way off. And it, it then it doesn't know if it's was the sight or, or what was the deal. Well, I always got to be messing with something, but for the most part, my bow is like usually on, but then like when we were up at Toll Archie Challenge, the one day, I mean, I was just starting to shoot consistently low. I mean, two shots right together underneath the target by six inches, like, well, my bow was out, so I had to make an adjustment with my tape, and then, then I was back on again, but before that, I was ready to ground tune it, and I was switching releases, and i was i had been using my uh thumb button release well when i'm on with that and i'm you know shooting like i'm supposed to you know pulling through it and just letting it fire it's great but then all of a sudden i start i get a little bit of anticipation and i start punching that trigger and then i'm holding low and now uh, time to go back to the silverback because the silverback is a true back tension and it might not be as accurate for me like like I can shoot around indoors like we did in the winter and I didn't shoot any fives. I shot more tens than I would like. So, I mean, my points, I mean, I shot, my overall score was good, but then I go to my thumb button and when I'm on, i shoot, you know, a lot of 15s, you know, it's real good high score, but when I'm off a little bit, I'm off in the two, I'm off. It's, it's really bad. So, the silverback i guess on my on average i'm better but it's more of the process than i'm not i have no usually no anticipation with that one
1: until you put one through the banners in the ceiling
0: oh yeah well he, that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he'll he'll be he'll be pulling and then it he thinks it should go off or whatever i've only shot it a couple times and then he just yanks it and
0: then it's well, yeah it, it's gone that's only happened a couple times, but
2: yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a as as my coach calls it, you know, grip and rip it. I'm like I'm an aggressive shooter, and I have to shoot pretty aggressive. And this year, I, I didn't really shoot a lot for the baby, and I felt myself getting lazy in the back end and pushing left. And like I said, I was at New Jersey State, and it was like I just kept shooting left. It was like. Ah. And I know what I'm doing, but I don't have the muscle memory because I haven't been shooting. And, you know, and I am like, man, be so nice. Just and, like, I bought one release. I didn't bring a two finger. If I had my two finger, I probably would have, you know, corrected myself what I was doing because, you know, the two finger don't go off unless you're set up, you know, I'm um, set up correctly. So I was like, mm, you know, lesson learned on that. <laughs> Always have both releases in my pouch.
1: <laughs> and so your transition to, um, 3D came from kind of the the coaching thing right yeah so you I guess kind of go back through that story on how you ended up with a with a coach
2: i uh shooting well, I've always shot bow well and as bows yeah, I decided to get a speed bow and a nice hair trigger index instead of my old you know 15 20 dollar true fire release i bought a nice Scott you know uh, little goose like nice roller, light trigger. Man, this is great. And I developed the worst case of target panic in the world. And I shot some deer in the guts and almost gave up hunting that year because of it. I had no confidence in my my bow, my setup. And I put a a post on Archery Talk. I was looking for a coach, and my coach responded. Dave responded. And I brought him my setup, and he's like, Mm. He kind of just made this gesture, like, mm. and <laughs> made fun of me for a little bit, and we've been yeah you know, really tight ever since.
0: <laughs> First thing, did he say, and get rid of that speed bow?
2: Yeah, I know. He, he said well, we're going to work with Index and work with everything I got. Like he's a he's an old level four uh, coach, so yeah, older guy, you know. So he's been don't, I would say old, but he's been coaching a long time. And it's that he's very anti-equipment. Use what you got, become a better shooter with what you have. Like, buying a new release, a new bow. isn't going to fix what's, you know, in your ears, basically. Right. So we worked with that uh, for a little bit. And then we drove up to uh, Lancaster Archery. And we tried a diff- couple different releases. And he's like, you know, buy this Carter. Thumb, thumb release. And I hated it. I hated it, Uh, but I still felt myself trying to punch it. So then, I bought a Scott four-finger hinge, and that was more. I felt more comfortable with that one. And then I started, you know, shooting some 3D with it. I'm like, this is so scary. First, I'm never forget. First time ever shooting at a a 3D course because I've never shot anything but in giant backstop. So here I am, like pulling back on a, a. Deer that's like 31 yards I'm like man if I miss what's how it's gone <laughs> yep and of course I't did miss but I was like wow he shot that really well and I shot a really you know strong that day and within a couple months you know, I was shooting the best ever and that's kind of what led me to 3d uh, competing because I uh, was actually pretty good at it <laughs> when I took the whole you know trying to you know uh, trigger the release, with my finger instead of just shooting subconsciously and it's been uh an up and down ride ever since more, more ups and downs you know but the last couple of years i've been winning some medals and winning some trophies so i'm happy
0: so what made you go with the whaling the, the hooker just the simple design of it
2: uh yeah yeah the simple Because that i got it from hunting that one year like once i really. Devoted myself to shooting, you know, um, a hinge full time. But you know, back then, I've been shooting these eight, eight years now, I think. <clears throat> but all the hinges had that little rubber band. Well, that would break, and then you got to do it manually. Well, it's noisy. And I had a, a thumb trigger. Actually, it was a true ball, yeah, break on. me. I had a Carter break. I sent it back as a mechanical thing. But I had, a, you know, another thumb trigger break. I'm like, you don't. Want, I don't want anything that's going to break. I want no moving parts, nothing. And i seen something on Archery Talk. And I was like, let me buy it. Uh, let me buy one of these. And I bought one. And I'm like, this is the worst release ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was so hard to execute. And once I figured out how to make it work for me, it was like, wow, this is actually pretty great. And I've been with them ever since. You know, it's, it's a release for me. It teaches me to keep my forearm calm. Any type of tension in my hand, and release, you know, either won't go off or I start pulling hard right. So it's a good, you know, it taught me. It, it's still teaching me to this day, you know, to stay, keep my forearm relaxed, and keep the tension in the back. Well, I think that's
1: good, you know, to for for anybody to to hear, you know, that that you went out there and, and got a coach, and that that's kind of like even a thing because that would not be the way that i would i don't think that's not the way that i would approach it and i don't know that that's the way that everybody around here i mean we we've got our bowman's club and so we've got access to you know there there's there's some there's some coaches and and things there um you know here in our our town and there's a you know those coaches do a, a class through the uh, community college here out at the Bowman's club. Um, yeah. so it's, it's available in this area, but you know, when you make bad shots and start to do that in, and get down, um, it's really interesting that that was the way that you chose to approach it. Cause I, I'm not sure that I would have went, I would have went through that. I don't, I think I would have just tried to practice. And I think it goes back to the kind of like the, the changing up the hunting thing, and I guess like the yeah. whole the mentality because I think I would have been like, "Well, I just need to practice more." But if yeah. I'm not,
2: All happens, oh, yeah. die hard, right? <laughs> and so if I'm doing
1: bad practice, then it, it, nothing's going to change. So I guess that's a really interesting thought process.
2: One, you know, one thing I remember uh, reading an article, you know, years ago, like before I got my coach, because people go, no, "I don't need a coach," and and the one guy chimed in is like, "Tiger Woods has a coach." Let that <laughs> sink in. Tiger Woods has a swing coach. Just let that sink in. And it's like, actually makes total sense. You you look at, you know, baseball players, any type of, you know, professional athletes, they all have coaches. Mental coach, physical coach. So, for the average guy that, instead of buying a new bow, he could take that, you know, $1,000 and invest it in coaching. For $1,000, you can get a lot of coaching. You know, because coaches don't charge a lot of money. That's a lot of coaching. And you're going to become a better shooter and like in the process of me becoming a a better shooter, it it forced me to become like a a, a better person in the process because your self image and how you view yourself is pretty much how everything falls in line afterwards. So, you know, when I became a better shooter, I started thinking, you know, better thoughts and next thing you know, like other aspects of my life slowly started to get better. And I was like, ah, this whole positive thinking stuff works. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a two-fold you a two-part question uh, I became you know a better shooter and a, be- a better person well
1: that's awesome it's weird and, and you know uh, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to reach out to you is because you know you've you know you've done a lot of podcasts but you've got a lot of, of very positive and good things to say I think what you're doing is is trying to you know teach people and help people and and you know inspire yeah.
2: people there's there's no right way to pretty much to you know shoot a release or or to, or to build a bow or to work on a bow or to tie in a peep site and there's so much out there that people get stuck on because you know this professional you know youtuber uh, archer does it this way I need to do it this way there's so many you know there there's so many mindless drones almost people well, I, it's got to be tied in this way it's got to be done this way no 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 find something that works for you and that's we're having a good support group slash coach. You know, a mentor comes into play because you know, they're going to work with what you got. You know, instead of trying to tell you what you don't have. And you know, there's like my hunting technique. It's it's such a melting pot of different things. It's not Dan Infall. It's not you know John Everhart. It's not you know Greg Miller or all these people. Or like my dad. It's it's a little bit from everybody, and I kind of made my own little recipe, and it, it works for me. You know, it, it, my way might not work for everybody, you know, but it should work for everybody. Like, you should find your own way to, to what works for you. Because we all have different strengths and weaknesses. So you just need to focus on your strengths. Show up your weaknesses, but focus on your strengths. If you're, if you're a good rut hunter, you know, focus on the rut. Like, I'm a terrible rut hunter. So, I do, you know, a lot of my killing is in October. So, I focus, you know, from October 6th to 26th that's like when I'm really 110% focused on deer, like mature deer. So in the rut, it's kind of like a free-for-all. Like hopefully I'll get lucky this year. <laughs> yeah, I think,
1: you know, that. that's a kind of what I was going to say is like that whole find out what works for you, but, but take what you've got and, and you know, use it and and make it work for you thing, I think is kind of like what comes through in the that public land thing, right? So yeah. that's I mean we're at right here where we're at there's I don't know 2 or 3,000 acres about 5 miles down the road and I've never mm-hmm. hunted there in my whole life and it's that's where I'm focusing this year because you know it is right there and I I feel like you know I'm, I've, I I not necessarily feel guilty but I feel like I've I've got that piece of land there, you know, to use that there's oh. deer on. Um, and I'm going to yeah. try and use that and learn that piece of property and then take what I learned from there and
2: apply it. And it's all trickle-down effect. You know, you become good in one area. You, usually it, it overflows in the other area, especially when it comes to hunting. Um, I know with guys that take on this a uh, different approach, there's a learning curve. Like once you figure out what's, what works for you, you, know, you can take your knowledge and go anywhere in the country and see deer. You know, like my my methods of hunting terrain and bedding, we were in Montana last year. I mean, I was finding mule deer beds elk beds like it was nothing. I mean, giant elk bed, you know, it's huge. And I'm like, Oh look, there's the horns, you can see where the horn, the horns are busted, all the, the pines up, kicking up mule deer out of beds and I'm like, ah, I can't even go across the Montana without stumbling Like, I'm just gravitated towards, you know, finding where animals dead and and it was kind of kind of neat actually. Well, that's a great
1: transition. You know, this is kind of changing it up for us. It seems like, you know, we started this whole thing uh, you know, talking about you know, we were going to talk about bow hunting and whitetails and all this stuff and as the podcast evolved and we started planning this elk hunt, it's been kind of elk talk like the whole time. And so you were out just recently uh I think last year you said in in Montana elk hunting um so yeah. what advice do you have for us as far as going out on our first um elk
2: hunt hunt, ter- hunt terrain um <laughs> <laughs> uh like i said I, I didn't take a bugle with me because I, I i'm not a very good bugler so i took a cow call and because I, I know from like years of turkey hunting uh like the gobble calls around here any animal that's pressured because you know most over-counter areas can are going to be severely pressured and we chose an area that wasn't... We weren't that far from a, a road. We didn't want to be further than three miles from a road because two people and an elk, you know, 100-degree heat, you know, possibly. We didn't want to lose any meat. So we, we hunted. We know we are going to be dealing with a high pressured area. So I went into, you know, not an aggressive mode, into a more seductive mode, a cow fall and hunting terrain. And it, you know, we've seen... You know, seen a lot of elk. <laughs> Almost got shot at a few of them at the same time. And if it's going to be hot, water. We ran out of water like twice. And to try and find water, or that's just brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. Uh, you know, I'm a mouth breather, so I, try, I consume a lot because I got a, a messed up uh, nose. So I drink a lot of water just to keep my mouth. <laughs> moist and I was burning through an excessive amount of water um, so that was rough for two days it was really warm and I spent more time getting water than actually hunting hmm. and that was not planned so I probably lost you know a couple I, I, I did lose a lot of time because I was constantly trying to find water to drink so
1: you would message me or we were going back and forth on Instagram uh, about um, food so we're trying to figure out our food. You did something that I hadn't ever heard of and then I'd seen the post that Brady Miller just put up um, about going stoveless and so Herbless, wh- yeah what was your I, g- I guess what did you what did you pack for food doing that and how many calories did you pack for each day?
2: Uh, I uh cuz we, we packed we had enough food for five days. And I originally was anywhere from like like 3,000 calories a day. I did a lot of oatmeal, uh, dried fruit. I did green belly bars. They're really dense, um, and I didn't bring a sit. I didn't. I didn't bring a stove. Um, I went all just trying to keep the sodium down because uh, my feet swell up, like my knees and feet will swell up too much sodium. So trying to consume like the prepackaged like dehydrated meals i'd swap like a tick (laughs) 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 so i was uh and that's just from my own knowledge of eating stuff around here uh and except my you know some of my injuries i got and the, the elevation change and stuff so i knew better than to bring oh high sodium uh content meals and my dad's a big appalachian trail hiker and I talked to him and some other people, and just from my time camping, I uh, I simplified it and just made up, you know, service meals basically. And you know, I I didn't even consume. I came home with a day and a half worth of food. Went out had five days worth of food. And I came home with a, probably a day's worth of food. Um, I didn't really need as many calories as I thought I was going to need. Which was strange, that I like to eat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just too busy chasing elk, right?
2: You know, uh, my buddy Rick went with me. He's a, he's a big, you know, he's got a lot of muscles to feed. And he he ate a lot of food. Even he even came home with food, you know, more food than he originally had planned. Um, but maybe we were just we packed more just to be safe. I don't know, like a, a subconscious thing. We're like, hey, you know, what? I'll pack another couple extra hundred calories in this my day uh, for for the day, just in case.
1: Well, and that's that's why we're. That's why we're asking all the questions because going out there, yeah. they, you don't you, you don't have any idea. I mean, we we are just you know trying to learn from everybody else. But I th- feel like unless you mm-hmm. you're out there and you know,
2: uh, you know what you need. Yeah, it's one of those trial tra- and error things. Like I like I do a lot of hiking and camping here, you know. Um, so I got an understanding of you know, that the backcountry style living. So I, I know what works for my body and what doesn't. So I try to stick with what works for me. Um, so I did uh, like honey, um, honey almond butter, the green belly bars. Um, I didn't even think I packed two metrics bars. And I did like um, oatmeal in the morning with whey protein, with powdered milk, uh, like some raisins and stuff. So I did uh, a lot of stuff I eat here regularly. On, on the regular, I just I bought some dehydrated versions of it, you know, dehydrated fruit, apricots, I like. So I bought dehydrated apricots, walnuts, almonds, and you know, I had oatmeal for breakfast and oatmeal for dinner. And he said, uh, I bought, I used my buddy's stove, you know, for coffee, like twice. That was about it. Like I said, my, my thing is like, I can, I can eat crappy food for five or six days. I'm out there to hunt, not to, uh, you know, have a five-course meal. I don't mind you know suffering a little bit <laughs> right and
1: i mean hopefully that that's the 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 least of your worries is your your
2: food you know it
1: should be about the hunt so
2: yeah and it's anything with the stove too like uh it's, they're kind of bulky with uh you know and i and i do load my pack in like my pack wasn't big like i'm, I'm a little guy you know and I had like a, a pack of like 4,000 cubic inches, and I was having a difficulty getting the stove in. You know, I had to separate the stove and like all these things. I'm like, I just, it's like, I, there's, I'm just not even going to bring it. If I need to use a stove, I'll, you know, I'll use bricks. You know, but like I said, I didn't even bring any meals to heat it up. I just had for coffee. And I should have just got the instant cold coffee and just had iced coffee. It probably would have been better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what What pack were you running?
2: I uh, I took a wilderness pack. They're out of uh, Washington, Oregon, or something. Um, Washington, maybe. The wilderness packs. Uh, I have a uh, long legs, long arms, and a short torso. I have a 16-inch torso, and I'm you know five to ten and a half. It's just kind of strange. So not a lot of pack manufacturers, like commercial based because I didn't go anything. You know, I didn't have a lot of money to spend on the pack. You know, I think I got 400 bucks in my pack, if that, and. They actually customized the pack for you know, my spot and scope and stuff. They actually, you know, built me a custom pack, added some things to it that I, just from my years of hiking, I I knew what I kind of wanted. So 400 bucks basically, you know, to my door for a pack that I had a hand in designing uh, that fit my torso. So, you know, in hindsight, you know, if I, well, I wouldn't say hindsight, if I had more money, I'd you know go stone glacier or caparo or something along the lines but i ain't got you know money to burn
0: like that i asked that because i'm still dealing with my pack i mean we ended up getting the the alps and they're the steel frame pack and yeah it was comfortable and you stuff know, at it. first but the straps were having like once you get like 60 pounds in there the straps wouldn't hold the weight it just kept slipping and slipping so then Adam come up with the idea for these uh, Molly straps, which are actually uh, like military surplus. and I ended up getting one, and then that was, it was too much padding on the back, so I ended up taking it up to the local canvas place. They cut it up and sewed them up, sewed them up and put grommets in it. Yeah. Basically like the factory one, or the Alps one that came with it. But I'm still dealing with the issues when I got it. There was something in it like got in the fabric and it gave me a major rash now every time i put it on i'm still getting like itchy scratchy red marks <laughs> i'm like man this is gonna be man. horrible if we're out sweating out there in idaho and i'm all rashed up
2: and with, with me and pack like I've, I've tried different packs on and and i said i don't mind a little bit of discomfort so to speak i'm out there like i mean i i love 40 50 pounds and i've been doing that with a not even a pack, just my stand sticks and everything for years with no padded backpack straps. So I've destroyed my traps, while <laughs> uh, hiking and stuff like that with ill-fitting packs. So I can have a pack that's not perfect and whatever. Um, I'm out there out hunting. If I'm sitting there saying well, this pack isn't comfortable or, you know, it don't allow me to carry 150 pounds. Listen, I've carried 100 pounds in my pack. There's no way I can carry 100 pounds. Plus in my pack and make it down the mountain, you know, without you know tearing my meniscus. So the idea of me sticking all this little you know, weight—this friend can hold 200 pounds—I don't need to hold 200 pounds. I can carry about 85 pounds comfortably without me worrying about breaking my neck.
0: Exactly. Yeah. You know. That's where I'm at. I'm like at. I told them like, well, 60 is my max because I could barely handle that with my my situation and, but it, the pack wouldn't hold yeah. it. It's like so every. Every few steps, it's you know breaking loose, and then all the weight's on my hips and throwing yeah. everything off, and I'm like, "Gotta fix it," but kind of got it fixed. Just now, I got to figure out how to get these straps uh, clean.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so you guys are getting close to it too, huh? Yeah, we got
0: <laughs> two weeks. Yeah, less than we leave the thirty first, so it was two yeah. weeks Friday. Yeah.
2: Are you guys flying or driving? Driving. Yeah, that's what we drove. And that was, we did the whole Rushmore, um, Yellowstone thing on the way home. So that was pretty gnarly. <laughs> um, it is boring to me. It was like 30 hours. That was rough. Yeah. Was like,
0: we're 34 hours. Yeah, you know, I just bought we're...
2: my truck too. Well, we took it a few months before the trip. And a new to me truck. And it was like, man, I put a lot of miles in my truck. <laughs> 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 Went to, you know, a set of breaks they you go know, a lot of miles I'm like, well, oh, this is not fun. But uh yeah, like if I I, planally, I might be going back to Montana next year. I uh got some unfinished business and uh I just enjoy it, you know, it's a it's a good experience. You know, grant we didn't kill anything, but you know, I I don't kill a lot of whitetails sometimes. So if you're for elk hunters, if you're expecting to kill an elk the first time out, you're sadly mistaken. To set some set some small goals, you know, to get out in range, you know, and, and work from there, so it you don't look at the trip as a disappointment.
0: Yeah, for sure, we definitely have we have our goals set quite low.
2: I had I had people tell me, "Are oh, you didn't kill anything? You drove all out the there you didn't kill anything." I'm like, you obviously aren't a hunter or or, or better in doing this very long because it's not always about to kill." You know, granted, we have a weapon in our hand, but it's the experience, you know. My my childhood friend, we've been hunting together since the beginning and we're doing something, you know, that we always wanted to do. And we almost shut an out. Like that's a win in our book. You know, <laughs> for sure. You know, there's memories. If him and I ever get back out there, it will be great. If not, we got those memories.
1: Right. I'm looking at it as an adventure and, you yeah. know, everybody has to start somewhere. And like my dad goes out there and, um, does the whole guided thing and shoots him with a rifle at, you know, a couple hundred yards. And he's very much, you know, I'm spending the money, I'm making the trip. I want to come home with with something. And, you know, that for, for the money that it costs to have a full outfitted guide, you know, type thing, there should be, you know, 99% success rate or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that just doesn't get my blood up. You know, like yep. that, that sort of, that sort of thing is for old guys. You know, I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're, you know, in in any kind of shape and, you know, you, the, the that's not the adventure that, you, you know, you should yeah. be seeking a, a, a,
2: a larger adventure, I guess. Yeah, and our goal when we went out was just, to, you know, stand out and shoot any illegal, like I wasn't, I wouldn't shoot. Like I didn't realize how big elk were. You see the first one, you're like, "What the? They're that big?" And the whole time, like the first time we see an elk, I'm like, and "I mean, they're off in the distance." I'm like, "I had to cut this thing up and take it off the mountain." Like, "Wow, that's that's really." Because mm. I didn't want to. I was. I was like, I, I told myself I wasn't shoot a calf. And I remember at that first, see my first the mature cow. It's like, I think I shoot that calf now <laughs> because it's still an elk, and I could you know, make one trip off the mountain with it, maybe. (laughs) Because there's some big animals there. Big. I mean, like, wow. And it was just, it was pretty cool, you know.
1: Well, that's one of the draws to where where we're going is it's any elk. And I feel like that that, kind of like exactly what you were saying, but the whole packing it out thing is like part Mm -hmm. of that experience. And so I would not want to forego that because I was after a certain antler size or antlers or yeah. anything like that. I mean ultimately you're out there for the experience and the meat and yeah. it's it it is what it is, you know.
2: Yeah. Do you guys ever quarter up a whitetail and packet out? I've not, no.
0: No, I've never quartered yeah.
2: Them. Just Yeah, it's we I shot a doe and uh we took it, you know, we pretty much quarter up in the woods. Uh, before we went, you know, the, the season before I went, and I mean, it was way. It's unless you do it a few times, like it was tough. We tried to quarter it without gutting it and stuff like that. We had no idea what we were doing. You watch <laughs> all the YouTube videos you want in the world. And we're like, yeah, we'll hold this here until you're done. You're like, this doesn't make any sense. This is <laughs> just so weird because it's something out of your element. And I'm like, I shoot something that's like a thousand pounds, like eight hundred pounds or something. It's like. I'm in it for a world of trouble. It's going to take forever quarter to quarter this thing up, and you know, and get the skin off, get the hide off. Because it took forever with that doe. I mean, it's just a good size doe, but you know, a third size of a you know mature elf. And like, now we're in trouble, dude. We shoot something really big because it's going to take forever to quarter this thing up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I at least have a, a little bit more knowledge on on that. You know, I, I don't I I don't expect anything to be easy. But uh one of the f- first podcasts when we first started um talking about going to elk hunting, I talked to my buddy on here and uh he went out and was successful his first year uh public land in Colorado but he didn't maybe do all the research that we did. And so he mm. was trying to gut it like a whitetail by himself and he, ah. <laughs> he lifted the leg up and it tossed him down. <laughs> And, yeah. and and he's a big dude. He's big, and he was wrestling this animal until all his family got there to help him. They're like, "What the hell are you doing?" It's like, well, yeah. he just thought it was a big white tail, and that's how he was gonna he was gonna gut it and drag it out, I guess.
2: And that's, uh, yeah, it, it was you know actually like seeing how big up were. It's like that's a whole a whole monster. And like I so said, with two guys, like a, you, you see these guys that are like that that planning going like six miles back and like. If you should in the health that far back, you're losing meat. Uh, I don't care how good your legs are, your lungs are. If you're at 10,000 feet, we're here from the East Coast. We're from flat ground. I don't care what type of shape you are. It's going to suck. Your legs are going to burn. Your lungs are going to burn. Plain and simple. And you got to make two or three trips back to the truck. You know, you're going to lose some of that meat. And uh, that would probably hurt me more than anything because... Yeah, you went out there and you took the life of an animal and you, you lost half the meat because you were too far from a road or you underestimated the, work, the amount of work to get out, to t- you know, to take it out.
1: Yeah, there's so much more to consider.
2: Like weather and, you know, the terrain where that thing dies. You know, like you might make a bad shot on the elk. It might run a you you know, half mile in the wrong direction.
1: <laughs> and when you say weather, what was the weather like when you were out in,
2: in Montana? It was hot the first. Days hot and then it rained for like a day, and then we got like 12 inches of snow. <laughs> we got we got snowed off the mountain. We actually had to, uh, we got snowed off the mountain because it was like we didn't have gear for it. It was dropping down to it was like 28 degrees, and we made a call like we're gonna freeze to death out here. Um, because we had gear, you know, 40 35 degree temperatures was so it. We can tough out one night, you know, we get down to 30, but it was 28 or you know close to 28 degrees and it was still daylight and we're like, get ready to, we're like, we got to get out of here. We're going to, we're going to freeze to death because it snowed, it rained and snowed. So we couldn't even start a fire if we wanted to, we tried starting a fire and it put us in a situation where like, you know, what, let's get out of here. And we drove because out there. Like this is not like you know, a city. We drove for like an hour and a half trying to find a place to stay, not like a hotel. Because we didn't plan on saying it, like it was totally like we didn't know what to do. We found a place to stay, and we went out the next morning. and It was probably 12 to fourteen inches of snow with drifts, you know, up to my thigh. Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah, everything out there is so remote. Yeah, and I like
2: it. Like that rush hour. We drove to one that to, uh on the on the way home. We drive through rush hour, and it's like this is rush hour. This <laughs> is like nobody here.
1: Yeah, that's the hard part. Where we're going, you know, I reached out to as many people as I can feasibly come across, you know, that are hunting in, near in the same area. Like, what are you planning for? And they said, Oh, yeah, you know, just twenty to ninety degrees. So, I'm like, oh, thanks yeah. for narrowing it down. But I think you yeah. know your your story kind of outlines exactly. I mean, that's how it can change just that fast. So you've got to be, yeah. you've either got to be prepared or you have to have the, the that contingency plan in place to say, if this happens, this is what we're doing. Like, this is where you, yeah. cause I would imagine that, you know, a couple hours of decision making there, if you would have, you know, kind of wavered on, uh, are we going to stay? Are we not yeah. going to stay? Could have yeah. made a real big difference.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I've like, my buddy Rick. we've, we've known each other for so long. We know we have our strength and weaknesses down, you know, uh, big physical guy. I can count on him You know, to be strong. You know, it's a fan, so to speak. You know, he's, he can, you know, lift the fucking tree off me if need be, you know, and I have a good way of like planning things out and making like uh decisions sometimes in a, like, uh, a fast paced, high pressure situation. I can make a situation, you know, I can make a decision that's well thought out, you know, uh, but I guess good gut instinct. So like we work well together, him and I, and it was, uh, they like said, it was just crazy because it was literally like 30 degrees. And I mean, we had no, I mean, but, uh, I mean, I had a cart a and a little bivy sack. That's all I had. And it was like snow's coming in. And I'm like, this is insane. I, can't, I mean, I, I was happy, but at the same time, like, it's getting a little crazy. You know, like, I don't want to die out here, you know, because there's mountain lions and I, I don't get die like and eaten by a mountain lion. That would not be cool. Or a grizzly bear. That would not, not be cool. Mm-mm. No. Was it wasn't part of the plan? What? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's not what I signed up for. And they uh, like said, it's, and that's a lot of the, the I think, people underestimate because I, I I was a snowboarder for a year, so I've been in the mountains when getting a bad situation fast. You know, it's like being out in the boat in the bay in the ocean the storms come in and you're out there like there's nowhere to go it's like oh well we're in it now you know and i i bet in a few situations that's scary so i have some preparation i guess in for uh, situations like that but that was actually you know uh cool but scary It's the best (laughs) way to describe it like wow this is really happening at the same time wow this is really happening (laughs) Yeah, so if, uh, any of your listeners you plan for the worst. It's, it's better to be a little over prepared, have a little too much gear the first couple times out because you know your life is, your life isn't worse than else, you know. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, but I mean I guess for what you set out to do, I mean, you got your adventure. You know, you wanted to have your your trip that you'd yeah. always <laughs> planned for, you got you you got basically all of it with the exception of the The harvest, but that's exactly what you're saying is that
2: there's more to it than just you
1: know killing something every time.
2: And that's you know that last day there, like we we drove back to where we were hunting, and we hiked up the mountain. You know, right at daybreak, we end up cutting a set of fresh tracks. I mean, we must have kicked them down like we're going up this cow path. We must have kicked them, you know, bumped them out. So you got fresh elk tracks in the snow, and we followed them and my buddy Rick got within 40 yards of a mom and I seen Rick pull his bow back. I'm like, this is really going to happen. Like, I was like, you know, knee deep snow elk, like, we're going to kill an elk. And it was like such an awesome day, you know, and uh, his, her cat ended up, you know, seeing Rick move and they blew out, but we chased them up the mountain, you know, tried to, I should say it was, it was a lesson. <laughs> you, know, you you can't catch elk. I don't care who you are. It's not happening, especially, you know, in knee deep snow. And it was just, we ended up cutting a few more tracks and we were out there all day that day. And it was like probably one of the coolest times I've ever been in the woods. Just Montana, September, snow, my best friend, you know, we almost shot an elk. It was just like one of those epic moments. You were like, wow, if this could, you know, if everybody could experience that, like it was just awesome.
1: Well, yeah, we're just, you know, hoping to, to kind of get our opportunity. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's have a good time, hear an elk, see an elk, have an opportunity, and
2: yep. that's and they that's that's a, that's a good game plan to have. Uh there's a lot of people that don't plan for that, or some people are like I'm just going for you know like you, you, the goal is see one, you know, so you got to put yourself in favorable conditions, you got to have a good mindset. But I thought some people are like, well, if I see one, I guess to see one. I'm like, man, I'm not going out there with that mindset. That's just terrible you know like that's a lot of time effort and money you've invested to uh, well uh, i'm like no nah, i can't have that you know i need a little more <laughs> a little more positivity and enthusiasm
1: well it seems like a lot of the successful hunters that we talk to whether it's it's whitetail hunters or or elk hunters you know it, the the mindset is every time you go out there it's to kill one you know, if you if you've got one in range or you've you've spotted some, like, you know, you have to have that positive attitude to say like we're gonna
0: We're gonna go we're, up there and kill it. Yep.
1: Not yep. not uh you know but we we also have realistic expectations, you know, we've never done this before. Um I've never seen an elk outside of the zoo. So yeah. <laughs> you know, never heard one bugle or, or anything like that, you know. So to say well yeah we're going to go out there and we're we're going to double up and that's what it's going to be you know it's certainly not that and it's also certainly not like well we're going out there to
2: you know try and maybe we'll see one yeah <laughs>
0: we're gonna go bow hiking
2: i can't wait to go back just talking about it just makes me want to go back this year
1: yeah so it but. sounds like it's going to be an expensive hobby um going forward because everyone that we've talked to has said the same thing it's like it's they said it's going to be your yeah. cocaine you know you're going to get out there and it's so beautiful and then the first time you hear one you know screaming it's going to be it's going to get you it's going to get
2: its hooks yeah. in you like like tim you know like tim's moving out to montana yep and it's like dude that's that's awesome you know that, that have that you know amount of balls to say F it i'm out going doing it like that it's just rad uh and like now i'm like oh you will doing? i got friends in montana now even more even better
1: <laughs> well that's how our whole trip started is john went out there to ride motorcycles and look at the eclipse and then they came across an elk herd with one of his <laughs> buddies out there and
0: everything snowballed yeah my buddy ed lives out there in Bozeman, and he's lived in Colorado and uh, Montana and he's killed some nice elk and he's kind of got out of it. He, I think it's been like six years since he's hunted and I got out there and he ended up bringing us up and showing us a herd elk coming out of the mountains. I'm like, dude, I'm coming back next year we're going hunting. And so he was just here last week. And when Adam and I started talking about it, I ended up choosing the trip with Adam, but, uh, my other buddy that we are out there riding with, they're going out, he's, he's going to end up going out there and hunt, hunt with Eddie, and they're leaving the day we get back. So I was like, I was actually talking to my wife, trying to, like, well, maybe I'll just hop in the truck with Mark and then head right back out to Montana, and, and uh, maybe they'll have a leftover tag, or I'll just tag along with those guys.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh I made a mistake of not getting a mule deer tagged I talked to my, my buddy. That's been out there. He goes get a mule deer tag. I don't need a mule deer tag. I mean, and walking up the first day. I mean, it's we're an hour, not even an hour from the truck. And me and my buddy, the the cowpath kind of splits off. So he goes left, and I was like, I'll just go right because I don't feel like going for that blowdown. And I'm just on the, just going across this little like little creek, and he goes his blowdown. Here comes this giant mule deer. stands up. You know, 150, 160 inch mule deer looking at my buddy. I have him dead to rights, you know, twenty times over. And I'm like, you cheap, cheap ass. Yeah, what about a Mule deer tag? And it's like he's right there. Had no idea I was there. And I was like, Huh that stinks and he just walked off like and just never knew I was there. And I was like, I could have shot him, you know, you know, a hundred times. And he had no idea I was there. And I was like, oh,
0: all oh, because I was cheap. I, you know, didn't want to spend the hundred eighty dollars, wherever it was, for a mule deer tag. Well, I think <laughs> that's where, well, we're kind of at. We're like, well, do we want to get the tag? Or I'm, I'm this way anyway. It's like, man, do I want that tag in my pocket? Because then, if I do have that opportunity, and I kill a white tail out there, because where we're at, um, I think there's more white tail in this area instead yep. of mule deer. Yep. And it's like, man, yeah, it'd be awesome yeah. to get that kill. But we're on a you know, basically we're going to have about seven days to hunt. Well, now we just, that's going to take up a day right there taking care of that animal. So do we really want to, you know, spend that valuable time on a whitetail or do we want to just focus on the elk? Yeah. yeah. Even though if that opportunity, you know, arises right there in front of us like what you're saying, it's like, man, that's still going to take a day out or at least a half a day.
2: Yeah. so. Uh, we go out next year, I'll, I'm going to have, you know, have a, a mule deer tag because I've never shot. You know, I was the first time ever seen a mule deer, and I have seen a, a whopper first time. We I seen a bunch. I ended up like seeing a bunch that whole week we were out there, and I was like, man, I said to kill something because the elk shut down on us. They just the, the butting stopped, and like I said, it got real hot and a lot of pressure, like a lot of road hunters. So the elk just moved what, in the one section we were at, and and we seen mule deer, and it's like, oh. It's, oh love to shoot something.
1: <laughs> well, I'm kinda on that same boat because um so there's a ton of black bears where we're at, where we're going. Um and so black bear tags like hundred and eighty bucks or yeah. a uh a white tail tag or it's actually just a deer tag, but with a deer tag, it's like three hundred bucks but you can kill a whitetail or a mule deer or a bear or a wolf. Or mountain lion. Yeah. You can kill basically anything that we come across. And it's like, kind of like what you had just said. Like, it would be nice to kill something if you're going out there mm-hmm. and you get the opportunity having never killed a bear before. But then, like John's saying, you got to, then you got to take care of it. But if, you know, mm-hmm. if it's the same case where you get out of the truck, you walk to the top and there's one standing right there, in hindsight, you you're you're kicking yourself. So... I don't know. Yeah. I, I think I'm probably just going to buy one. I mean, when I was filling out all the applications and doing all the stuff, you know, it, it would have significantly made it more expensive. But now that the elk tag and everything is the hunting license and everything is purchased, it's like, Oh, now it's just, you know, money on top of it. Yeah. It was
0: an easier pill exactly. to swallow, like, I think.
2: Yeah. What's about know, hundred bucks when you're already, you know, eight, nine hundred bucks <laughs> into
0: it. Definitely <laughs> Right. And so as soon as Adam does that, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't turn that down. I'll have to follow. (laughs) We'll just get an elk the next time. (laughs) But, you know,
1: we've had you on here for for quite some time. So I really uh, appreciate you you coming on here and just, you know, talking with us and and kind of hopefully, you know, reinvigorating some of our listeners that are, you know, down on themselves, maybe that they got to, that they got to, uh, be on state land or, you know, they're not shooting well or or, or any of these things. Like I said, I, all of your stuff is so, you know, helpful. Like, I think yep. that's the way it's positive it's positive, and you're trying to, you know, teach people uh, different things. So I, I really appreciate you um, yeah, coming on fun. here. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where can people find you on, uh, on social media? Uh,
2: yeah, Instagram, Scene, and YouTube. Uh, bell hunting team. Um, I should get off my butt and do some editing because I got some videos that need to be done, but uh, being a baby, you know, having a baby, is kind of... Time is limited right now. <laughs> I need to spend it wisely before uh, hunting season starts so I can actually go hunting uh, without my wife wanting to kill me. <laughs>
0: yeah. One of the things that, like, I wanted to say is that that's really cool about your situation is that you go out and... You're not using the the latest and greatest the you know this year's model bow that you know that's a good that's a good message to guys that you don't have to have a brand new bow you don't have the brand new top of the line anything you just got to go out there and do the best that you can with your you know your equipment and focus on yep. your shot process and you know your shooting abilities and you'll still get, you're going to go out there and I mean you're you won. New Jersey, uh, the New Jersey State, um,
2: 3D. Yeah, yeah i you know, state champion. I've hit him twice this year. It's two third places. Last year, I was state champion. I placed in Virginia, Delaware. Um, it's an all with hunting model bows. Right. I don't shoot like a shoot-through riser or, you know. I mean, I won Jersey states last year with literally a bow, Uh, Newbury sent me a bell. I literally shot it three times. I had a humming rest, a humming stabilizer, and a cheap $40 Apex sight. And, you know, I ended up shooting first place. Getting in first place.
0: That's pretty refreshing to hear that. So
2: Yeah. (laughs) And that's the best part. You know, when I step up to the line, like, people look at my equipment. You know, I'm covering the tattoos, you know, and all that stuff. So, people, you know, I get that weird look. Like, let's see, them here. And then when I beat them, not just beat them, I crush them. And I just look at them like, yeah. and give them that little smirk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you like I, me now? <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well,
1: this has been a great conversation, Greg. And uh, we really appreciate having you on. So, uh, we'll have to catch up with you.
2: Yeah. Good luck out there. I want to I want to see good pictures, good stories, and I want to see some bloody arrows.
1: We're definitely going to give it our all, but I think I think you that your last little tidbit there is is we're we're buying extra tags, so <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna shoot something. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll try and catch up with you after the season, and um, we're we'll definitely be following along, seeing uh, all those monsters that you're killing out there on on state land. So trying. I think that's all we got for today. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And, uh, you know, to be sure to follow along with Greg and everything that he's doing. But we're pretty much all set for this episode, so thanks for listening. All right, see ya.
0: with Into the Blue brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.